0: So hello everybody, uh, welcome to Beyond Closing. My name is Victor Simmerall. Today we have a special guest with us. He is probably uh, the most successful self-made real estate investor that I know, and he's going to talk to us about his uh, how he got into real estate, how he came to this country, and just a little bit about uh, what makes him tick. So. Uh, I'm going to introduce you, Borko Milosev. Borko, welcome.
1: Nice to have nice you. Th- hit- thank you, Victor, for having me. That's a very generous
0: introduction. Uh, <laughs> We've got to expand your network. I don't know. You, you <laughs> are you're a very humble person. Uh, I, I know you for for a while, but only really got to, to know you a little better uh, recently. And, yeah. uh, uh, we had a, a few interesting conversations. That's why I really felt like I really uh, would be so privileged for you for you to come in. Well, actually, you are. Wh- where are you coming to us from? You're at your home, and
1: uh, yes, I'm 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 working from home, uh, like probably most most of the world or most of the valley, and uh, have been for the last what now almost two months.
0: Sure. Our our office is uh, both Auckland in Bethlehem both to the public, but uh, it's just uh, three people here. uh, We're working at different ends of the office. All of our staff are working remote. But so, so Borco, tell, tell me a little, tell everybody a little bit about uh, uh, what you do, uh, your accomplishments to today. And then, you know, let's go back to where you grew up. Sure, sure, sure
1: so um you know i call myself a, a real estate developer uh, or, or investor uh we have um i I'm a, owned a company called post road management which is based in bethlehem uh, we own or and manage uh we self-manage only our own projects and we have a
0: your your office is in the building right on Elizabeth Avenue and Linden Street, the tall building there? Correct.
1: Yep, 65 East Elizabeth, which we can talk about later if you would like. That that was one I, of our projects. I, okay, go ahead. We, we basically, you know, I, I look at it kind of at two different uh, buckets. We have about 1,500 apartment units in and around Lehigh Valley um, that we own and, and self-manage. And then we have... About 16,000 apartment units in 15 states, uh, which we run in a partnership and on behalf of um, a wealthy New York City family where we don't we don't manage. We are essentially acting as an operating partner and an asset manager and, um, and have a third party management company out of, out of, um, out of Detroit, Michigan. Uh, That portfolio is at about a billion dollars, and then our Lehigh Valley or greater Lehigh Valley area portfolio is probably approaching about $200 million. So, you know, fairly big AUM or assets under management um, and fairly big operation. In Lehigh Valley, probably about 40 employees, and then indirectly uh, on that large portfolio, I would say another 400 employees that
0: that that work with us. So I, I find it fascinating. So a teenager that comes to this country by himself from Serbia, uh, how how do you go? And, and not just not just the real estate side, but also uh, I want you to talk about uh, the adventurous side of you. Uh, climbing sure. towards the world's tallest uh, peaks but go go back to your you know talk about your childhood and and sure. and, and when what led up to you coming to this country and uh, go ahead sure sure so
1: thank you i um i i was born as you said in serbia i lived there till i was uh, 18 years of age um my brother uh, would tell me that, even as a young kid, I would watch a you know movie wall street and with Michael Douglas and tell him you know I, I wanted to be in, you know I wanted to be on Wall Street and work on wall street and uh, you know i I've been trying to convince my parents from young age that I wanted to come and study abroad and they kind of granted me that wish and I ended up coming uh, as a, an exchange student uh, to study to do a senior year in in high school, kind of act of God or luck or whatnot, ended up in in Wilson. Uh, So I went to uh, Wilson High School. After uh, Wilson, uh, I enrolled into Moravian, uh, where I was, you know, four years, uh, got a dual degree in mathematics and financial economics. And through Moravian, I ended up meeting a gentleman that became my mentor and is now one of my principal investors, uh, a gentleman by the name of Rob Verone, who's also a Moravian alum. And who gave me an opportunity to kind of fulfill my dream of working in New York City and working on Wall Street. So in 2004, um, after graduating Moravian, I went to uh, work in uh, commercial um, uh, lending um, on on Wall Street. We did something called commercial mortgage backed securities, and I worked in a group that was called Lodge loan groups. So that was a group that would do loans that were fifty million dollars and above. Um, my Biggest loan that I've done while working at Wacovia was the buyout, leverage buyout of Extended Stay America, which was a $7.4 billion dollar uh, uh, financing or an $8 billion dollar acquisition. So it was a really great exposure, really uh, uh, interesting experience uh, for a young, you know, 20 something uh, year old kid. Um, I did that from 2004 through 2008. And then, as you know, the kind of market blew up. Sure. Uh, my 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 boss and, and my mentor, Rob Verone, who at that time was the co-head of the entire real estate um, platform for Wachovia and oversaw about $60 billion balance sheet and 800 employees, left and partnered up with um, a hedge fund called Scoggin Capital and another and a New York City developer called Belvedere Capital to start this distressed Debt buying fund, and um, I was lucky enough to be his first employee at that venture. Um, I joined in summer of two thousand eight, and um, as you also may recall, I believe in September Lehman, uh, you know, uh, uh, blew up, and the bankruptcy, Bank, Pepsi. and then in November Fannie and Freddie essentially got nationalized. So our effort of, of, of raising the fund and going into distress that acquisition arena, which we hope that we were able to do, sort sort of something similar like RTC days, and then, you know make millions uh, uh, fell into water uh, as as all the investors were running for the hills and you know um, uh, nobody wanted to uh, you know liquidity was a big issue people didn't have money and so on and so forth. So we actually ended up reinventing ourselves and ended up becoming a, a, a running an advisory shop where we did that restructuring for about four or five years we helped uh, some of the large New York City uh, owners operators restructure their loans that were now defaulting at a at a great pace and that in itself was also a very very um, a good experience uh, gave me a lot of insight I, I was able to see and learn on other people's mistakes. Um, you know, all
0: well, commercial,
1: commercial. Yes. So for instance, we did one loan that maybe people uh, would recognize if they watched uh, Dirty Money, but we did a 666 Fifth Avenue for Kushners um, and president's son-in-law. Yeah, uh, They were one of our clients. Actually, as a matter of fact, we were, I could, you know, uh, probably say that we kind of, carved our, ourselves a niche. We were, because we were first to, to market to do that, we were uh, kind of a go-to guys for any debt between $50 million and a billion dollars, right? There were large restructuring shops like Lazards of the world. Um, that were doing uh, corporate debt restructuring, but as a single asset or even portfolio, frankly, and one of the portfolios that, that, that I, uh, we ended up buying one of the portfolios, that $300 million portfolio, which I mentioned earlier for that new york city family and that's how i started that that venture but that was that was distressed that, that type of a deal and the reason why i'm mentioning all this is because you know it will kind of make more sense when we talked about you know how i started in real estate and and where i'm going and what my strategy is it's it's very opportunistic you know and I, I very much enjoy and try and looking at the debt, that, you know, distressed real estate opportunities well, and was it was, was kind blood. of part of all that training.
0: It was in your blood for a long time because you were a real estate investor even when you were in school. Yes, that's right. That's right. Good, good memory. So what, what happened there is on the West Broad or yeah, West Broad Street in Bethlehem, right?
1: That's right. That's right. So during college, I would, uh, I would, uh, in order to pay for school, I would I worked for a caterer uh, um, on as needed basis, and the gentleman that I worked for was a real estate investor himself. You know, more of a weekend warrior, if you will. And so, as a cheap labor, you know, he would hire me to go and do unit turnouts or, you know, unit cleanouts rather, and unit turnouts, and then also to, you know, paint and do a couple of things and. He saw that I was hardworking and had interest, so uh, uh, he took interest in me and and would pass along a, a good book. He would read about real estate or pass a, a, a good uh, uh, material. So for instance, I remember at that time, uh, Carlton Sheets, I believe had these CDs and infomercials. And so he passed me one of those and I listened to to, to him and I still remember uh, getting a book from, from this gentleman, Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, which, fundamentally changed changed my life you know the whole idea of being able to reach financial independence you know at that time what i perceived as a kind of you know in a very uh, easy relatively easy uh, and fast path of a couple of years can keep in mind that as a as a college student i didn't have a, a very big nut so i only needed to have a, a little bit a little bit of money, kind of this passive cash flow, to obtain what Robert Kasaki so called that financial independence. So I figured, you know, with ten homes, I could be financially independent, and that to me felt very, very easily
0: achievable. So, so I, I knew I, I wanted that. So what you're saying is, with ten homes, you could not work the rest of your life as long as your lifestyle. That,
1: that was the idea, right?
0: Yeah, but your Correct,
1: life as long as that, right? <laughs> It does. Lifestyle did, does change. But at that time, again, I figured, you know, if I had 300, I mean, if I can make $300 uh, per home and if I had 10 homes, I would have this $3,000 of, of essentially cash-free income, right? Because real estate is financed, I mean, uh, taxed very favorably and a lot of income is sheltered for, for, uh, for a bunch of years. So, so I thought if I bought 10 homes, and I had about three hundred dollars a month of access cash flow, and I had three thousand dollars a month as a college student without debt. Uh, that could, you know, uh, uh, certainly set me on the right path. Where you're right, you I wouldn't have to work. Not that I ever wanted to stop, and I'm not sure that I will ever stop. But, but uh, that was my goal, and like I said, it felt very, very achievable. So, I started looking for homes. Uh, it took me probably about six months to find the right one. And the first one was a home at 1767 uh, West Broad. It was um, a hot foreclosure. Uh, It was pre uh, Zillow days. And so I was literally pulling the uh, county, you know, filings and trying to do my own Zillow and do my own BOVs. And um, uh, I remember uh, I came up with a, after, Renovation value of about $100,000, 110000 for a home that I bought for $67,000. Um, and uh, what I ended up doing is kind of getting a bunch of my college buddies. And we did a lot of you know manual and easy work ourselves, like painting and putting pergo floors and, and things of that nature. Obviously, we hire professionals for, for more more complicated jobs, but there wasn't a lot to do. The idea was, and I think I learned this probably through listening to Carlton Sheets. You know, I went and I did a cash I refi, um, you know, pulled my equity investment out and, and then some money and kind of used that money to buy a second home and then a third and so on and kind of build a small portfolio. Uh, frankly, first house while I was still in college and then once I moved to New York, I would commute back and forth and work, uh, you know, on building my real estate portfolio on, 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 on weekends. Do
0: you currently that, own the first house? I'm sorry? you currently own that first house?
1: No, no. I, I sold it in 2007. I sold all I knew, of the homes in
0: 2007. I knew you sold it, but I, I, I always wondered, like, are you going to buy that house back again someday? Just, uh, there, for-
1: there's definitely some sentimental value to, to it, but I try to, uh, to keep it you know motions out of it
0: I'm sure every time you drive past it you look over at it
1: that's right more, more so than any, any other for sure yeah um, very, very proud of that one that's a good story
0: so yeah, uh, you know, that that was what year was your your first house 2003 okay and then so where, where did you go from there with, uh, with real estate? yes
1: yeah, so we you know continued to acquire uh, mainly hot hot properties um, did it for a couple of years and then in 2005 at this time i was in new york working at the bank i stumbled across the first property in a multifamily property that we uh, i acquired with a partner Um was my manager at the bank different different gentleman one of the mds the managing directors that i work for and uh, i remember uh, we bought it was a 16 unit building on livingston street in bethlehem that, that we bought in 05 where we um, uh, uh, bought it, I think it was around 7, 7.5 cap rate which at that time was possibly low, uh, believe it or not, for 05 but one thing that we noticed was that on this rent roll, looked at say two bedroom apartments and there was a very big gap between a rental rate, so there was people that were paying $750 for a two-bedroom, and there was a lady that was paying, you know, $500. So we, we saw this opportunity to kind of bring everybody to market or raise rental rates. And we were able, with our first acquisition, to drive. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I think it was the rental was about 88000 a year. And we were able to get it to about a $100, dollars 120000 within about two years. So it was, as people re- refer to it, kind of that value-add. Acquisition where and our value add was you know by by adding or, or or generating more more revenue, and then similar story with you know with as with single family homes. Once we were able to increase revenues, that increased the NOI. When the NOI increases, all things being equal, the value increases. So we went to another lender. Were able to get you know do a new appraisal, refinance, take our investment out. Uh, take the debt, you know, repay the debt, put a new debt on, remove, you know, repatriate all the investments, and had some excess cash. When then, frankly, couldn't buy anything, and that turned out to be the the right thing. We, as a matter of fact, we were net sellers. We sold all the homes in 2007 and didn't buy a multifamily property until 2009. And kind of we, so for for the most part, we, you know, it was a small portfolio, but. What we did have, we kind of dodged the, the bullet um, uh, with 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 08, 07, 08, 09 uh, recession, great recession, and then in 2009 we started uh, buying again. Um, I think one of the first buy was a property called Julian Court in in Allentown, uh, 1521 West uh, Union Street, and that was a a bankruptcy sale. We actually went to a bankruptcy auction and and uh, the same. Uh, partners and managing director who I work for directly him and I auctioned it off and bought that property 20% occupied you know owned by a very bad landlord who who now I think is in federal prison uh, serving jail time for uh, money laundering and defrauding his partners so uh, you know bad story but it was a you know very heavy lift we work hard on it and um you know got the occupancy out fixed the property renovated all the units and so on and so forth and then bought another property right there on the corner and kind of slowly start building commercial or the multi-family side of the business um, and that went on till about 2010 is when i first wanted to quit uh, my my new york job was job and come back to the valley and do this full time. But then my my mother uh, uh, was not happy about that. And she would, uh, uh, you know, she persuaded me to to reconsider, which I did for about a year. Uh, I think they, you know, she and a couple other friends didn't didn't trust uh, yet that I knew what I was doing and that, you know, uh, I was doing the right thing. So I ended up sticking New York uh, for another year, 2011. And then in 2011, we had another acquisition, Or project in in Emmaus, 48 uh, unit in Emmaus, which we're actually in process of selling now, uh, that I finally was like, you know what? I think it's the right thing. I'm doing the right thing. Uh, I gotta go and and do this full time. So I I quit uh, January 1st, 2012, basically, um, and came back to the Valley and
0: I've been here ever since. Okay. So your, your formula, is it pretty much the, the same on just about all of your investments? So do you, do you buy, do you look at anything that's a one to four? Or is everything yeah. you know, So over five years?
1: Yeah, so very, very good question. And I think there's a couple of things there that I can that answer. So, you know, in terms of a formula, my investment approach has changed over time. You know, I love that line that success leaves clues. Uh, So, you know, the idea is you don't have to be super original. Uh, You can find somebody that's successful and sort of emulate. So being in New York and working for, you know, uh, uh, for a bank where we were doing lending to these very large borrowers, you know, I got exposed to some very wealthy individuals and got a chance to observe them. So at first, the idea was, um, um, you know, never sell. Buy, you know, buy something right. And that's the second aspect, which I'll talk about a little later. What means buying right and how we would create values. But, you know, buy it right, if you will, and then own it forever, right? And going back to also that idea of Robert Kawasaki, continue to create and increase your passive cash flows over time. And that worked for me for for a bunch of years. As of late, I would say in the last three, four years, I've changed my strategy under the influence of the gentleman who I have 16,000 apartment units with. He's more of a kind of create value and, and get out, if you will. And that could still be three, four, five years. It's not flipping in the traditional sense of, you know, buying a house and selling it three, four months. And there is kind of a mathematical,
0: your, what you mean is uh, ch- change the cap rate to your favor.
1: Or, you, or, or even if cap rate stays the same right? One way is change the cap rate correct. If you're buying an asset that's, that is greatly distressed, right If you buy an asset that's called like we bought that, that 20 unit building I mentioned on uh, Julian Court where it was falling apart. you know the prior owner has been sucking a dry from you know, for years, not reinvesting capital. And so that property would be categorized maybe as C, C minus property. We go in, we spend, call it, I don't know, half a million dollars renovating 20 apartments in the building. Now you get into C plus, B minus. So yes, you have a change in the cap rate, uh, theoretically. In addition to that, you can now charge higher rental rates because you have a much nicer product. So that's the value that we will create. Um, You can also create value you know, or discover value, if you will, if you buy distress, right? So buying uh, properties um, at foreclosures, buying properties that were in bankruptcies, buying notes, uh, which I've done a quite a bit and I really enjoy um, uh, because I think that the field, the number of people that do that is not that crowded. And I understand that, and it is complicated, but I understand and I actually enjoy working on it. It's kind of almost like a playing uh, a chess um, and, uh, you know, just understanding given the training that I've had in New York that I mentioned earlier, doing uh, debt restructuring, that distressed debt restructuring. So those are all different ways that you can create value. And sort of going back to what I was talking about, you know, under the influence of the gentleman that I currently uh, work with, um, One of the partners is that, you know, mentioned selling it once that value is created. So if you kind of think about life of the investment, you know, you do all these things that we talked about, you know, and mainly it has been spending capital, renovating, upgrading, you know, taking all dilapidated buildings, buildings that are falling apart. And a lot of buildings that we've done as of late are buildings that nobody really wants to touch and been sitting vacant for years, doing all the work, again, creating that value. And then you can continue to own it. And that value after that point, after you've done all the work, is not going to grow that great any longer. It, it will grow with some inflationary level or it will grow, right? If you believe that Lehigh Valley value or whatever market you're in is going to grow by itself, right? Given the dynamics, supply and demand that are happening in, in that market. But it's certainly going to be at a slower growth rate than the first part of the investment which is when we were doing all this work. So just to simplify, let's say that out of $100 that you can make, first $80 I make up front by doing, again, let's call it all the work, right? Um, renovating, upgrading, releasing it, et cetera, et cetera. And the remaining 20, and that takes me, say, a year or two. And the remaining 20 might take me five years, right? Or seven years or whatever your uh, 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 investment horizon is and your whole horizon is so there's this whole idea of, of the velocity of your money and so the theory is that and it works in practice is that you know once you've created these 80% you know once you made your say 80 dollars out of 100 if i sell it and i can invest it and do the similar deal right and if it also took me a year or two years instead of 80 i could have now 160 right versus having this 80 and then waiting to get to that 100 and that might take however many years so the reason why I was able to do well financially and kind of grow my capital relatively quickly is because of that. Like I said, I've, I've only kind of been implementing that strategy in the last three, four, five years. Um, so that's kind of different investment thesis and it seems like it's working uh, pretty well for us.
0: So I guess that strategy would have to be adaptable as the economies change.
1: Sure. Absolutely. And, and, you know, in an economy like today and, you know, God only knows what, what you know, next 6, 12, 24 month look, looks like. Um, and with very limited, you know, debt availability right now, um, you may not be able to sell, which we're perfectly fine with, right? We are okay with holding the assets and owning them long term, you know, um, we always with them with that in mind even when the opportunity is right to to sell you know we do we do look at those things and if, you know we've, we've been we've been fairly busy i would say over the last you know 24 months we have probably sold two dozen or three uh, 36 months we have probably sold over two dozen apartment buildings um uh, in lehigh valley
0: i remember you were in my my office like three months ago and we were having a conversation about your plans for the next uh, 12 months and your acquisition and buying real estate and across the country, actually. Has that changed with the COVID situation?
1: Not really. Not really. I mean, I, I do, um, I do think that, you know, you know, COVID situation is relatively speaking a short-term impact that, you know, Everything that I'm seeing and reading, people are calling for, you know, they refer as a V-shaped recovery, um, you know, so kind of a declining GDP, you know, in the first quarter of this year and certainly in the second quarter um, and things starting to recover in in third and fourth quarter. It is not clear how fast that recovery is going to happen, but people are anticipating that if not by 2021, certainly by the end of 2022, we should be back at pre-COVID levels. Um, you know, just this morning, actually, I listened to a great podcast um, on Tim Ferriss uh, of uh, a gentleman that runs a, a over $100 billion hedge fund called Oak Tree, and I would encourage all your listeners to listen to it. And, you know, he made a, a comment which makes a lot of sense, you know, with with expected um, uh, discovery of vaccine or, or, or treatments for COVID, it probably is going to Become a seasonal type of an issue, sort of like flu. So I think we will figure this and kind of be able to live our lives as we were prior in the long term. Um, so you know, my plans are long term plans, and and those have not changed on a short term basis. Yes, you know, uh, I'm believing that for the most part, this is a washed out year, if you will. Uh, even though we 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 sort of have been busy, been busy, we. We've sold a couple of things. We're in a contract to buy something else and, uh, we're, um, and also starting a, a construction, a development project, a large development project um, uh, relatively soon. So, um, but it's certainly not as busy as we were prior to COVID. So there is some adjustment, but they're mainly short term and somewhere interme- intermediate term basis.
0: One of the things I find fascinating about you is uh, your, the adventurous side of you. Uh, you know your uh, desire to climb the tallest peaks in the world, and uh, yes, who? How did? What? Who inspired you? In that, like, uh, tell us a little bit uh, about that. Your first, so you had your big challenge. So to train for it. Sure, sure. So, so prelude
1: to climbing was actually a, a triathlon. Believe it or not, know it might not make sense, but it sort of went from kind of one. Um, challenging uh, uh you know there's another challenging event that kind of predated the climbing and and so i'll start there if you don't mind so triathlons i started competing in 2008 it was after the uh, great recession and kind of going from 100 miles an hour um, literally at, at times working for four months straight without a single day off and I used to joke when I was in New York, we would have um, uh, four shifts. We worked four shifts. It was pre-lunch, after lunch, uh, uh, after dinner, after midnight. And there will often be nights that we work till like 2 a.m., you know, and again, seven days a week. Um, and so it goes from that kind of pace to nothing, right? Working for a bank where, you know, liquidity froze and there was absolutely zero lending. And so you know, at the beginning, it was exciting, you know, young kid, in New York City, not much to do. And we still had our corporate credit cards. So a lot of taking clients out and dinners and drinking. And but after like two, three months, I realized that I was drinking maybe way too much uh, and uh, coming home drunk uh, or tipsy three, four times a, a week. And I was like, ah, oh, this is not a, a good path or path that I uh, want to go down. So I kind of decided to, you know, first run and then bike, uh, swim, and then ended up buying a bicycle and really fell in love with the bicycle and uh, decided to uh, put my, myself a goal to compete in an Ironman competition in three years. And so uh, I did a first Ironman in 2020, uh, 2010 and then uh, did another one in 20 other Alcatraz basically to San Francisco. Uh, did some long-distance bike riding in part of Tour de France in, in French Alps and rode my bicycle from San Fran to L.A. But then after 2015, I kind of was looking for a new challenge. And I got the idea uh, after going to Nepal for my college roommate's wedding. Um, um, we, we ended up trekking, as they call it in Nepal, part of uh, this mountain called anapurna mountain which is one of the deadliest mountains in the world but we only tracked it around the base camp so nothing dangerous really but just being in presence of these you know 26 27 28000 feet peaks was awe-inspiring and as i say to people you know if you, if you don't believe in god you start to when you when you, when you see himalayas and, and get, get get exposed to those massive mountains so anyway i i got back and 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 was the bug had bitten me so i i signed up to uh, uh hike climb kilimanjaro which is the tallest mountain in africa and uh, after doing that i was
0: totally hooked you know there you i was exposed to for that explanation
1: yeah yeah i mean i had my triathlon training and you know kilimanjaro is not not difficult i would i would encourage people to 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 do it it's 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 really a, very very inspiring to do, but it's doable it's hike it's a high altitude hike um, not really difficult, not other than the altitude uh, but that's why you take your time when most people fail by trying to rush it um, there's actually statistics where you can see longer you take higher uh, your chances are of, of summiting um, so people in reasonable shape or people that want to uh, dedicate themselves to training and preparing for that. They can absolutely do it. Um, and uh, anyway, so after that, I was I was hooked, and I solved this challenge of doing seven summits, which was the tallest mountain on each continent. And um, I've done five so far, uh, without rest and without Antarctica. I'm I'm considering doing Antarctica. I would love to see that continent. People say that it's absolutely magnificent and compare it to as close as they said as closest as to being to the moon. so I, I would really like to experience that and but i and then, as far as everest I, I don't think I will do it uh, i did um, I did Denali last year, and that was three week uh, three weeks long expedition where you're completely off the grid, and uh, it's a long time to being intense and out there and and everest is even longer it's about 45 to 60 days and I just couldn't picture myself at this point in time and you know We recently started a family. I have a young daughter and I just couldn't imagine myself being away for for those Long periods of time, but that's fine.
0: You know Uh, talk about above fifteen thousand feet and as things really start to change and how uh, you can't trust your senses, and how you gotta have to be regimented for hydration and and breathing and temperature management and and oh management. yeah,
1: oh yeah. So those are very good points you're bringing up. I mean, I've I've climbed. I've done all my climbs with a single outfit out of Washington, state of Washington, Seattle, Washington. Uh, called company called Alpina Sense. Actually, found them in National Geographic. They were they were references one of the best like Everest uh, outfits, and um, their organization and their guides are impeccable. I mean, they run a very tight ship. I um, mean, from prep um, uh, to the expedition, you know, and and the gear list, which is often hundred plus items long. Um, uh, and kind of training you on, you know, where they teach you about a lot of those things you mentioned. You know, how to layer, um, meaning how to stay warm. You know, and and um, you know how important the hydration is and and feeding fuel, right? Or eating food as that that's how you, that's your fuel and that's how you create uh, energy and and how to sleep and altitude and all those type of things. But that doesn't stop, and that's why I love Alpine ascents and and go with them exclusively. Is because that doesn't stop even on the mountains. I mean, they're the uh, just the last trip um, we did in Alaska. I mean, they're constantly checking on you, even you know, even in a subtle ways that you would know. Looking how much food did you eat because people tend to lose the appetite and it's hard for you to eat. So they'll look at your bowl like did you finish your breakfast, did you finish your dinner, Uh, questioning you how many liters of water did you drink, you know, you know, might sound odd, but have you gone to bathroom, you know, if you're not, you know, going to bathroom, you know, you're not taking enough of hydration, Um, things like that, how did you sleep, how much did you sleep, you know, so it's a, it's a very, um, uh, um, very well structured plan. And, you know I wouldn't dare to kind of do it on my own or or just with group of friends deciding hey let's let's go up and and find these mountains but so it's it's with with their help and and kind of with these extremely uh, well versed and professional leads uh, lead guides that that you know I, I was able to do all these things what what's
0: the next adventure for you
1: um so i'm I'm training to go to Alps uh, this summer assuming that everything else uh, Holds. Uh, we're scheduled to climb um, uh, highest mountain in Italy and Switzerland. Uh, uh, in Italy, it's called Grand Paradiso, and and in Switzerland, it's a Mont Blanc. And then uh, we're going to do one more mountain called Matterhorn, which is this beautiful iconic mountain. Um, so that's that's planned for end of August, beginning of September. And then, as I mentioned earlier, I would love to do Antarctica. And then after that, frankly, I don't know. I might, I might stop climbing and and look into some other challenges. But we'll see. Okay. I haven't
0: decided yet. Any other uh, new things? That, come on, you know, you know what I'm gonna ask you. Like, what's your next, uh, your next uh, achievement?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Learning how to fly.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, right. Well, um, That's right. You that, know, th- thanks. Thanks. To you.
0: you know, maybe uh, a year or two, you'll have it. Uh, you'll have it accomplished in, in a month, right? <laughs>
1: well, I don't know. We'll see, but you told me it was easy until, and I believed until I printed these two books, uh, that are each about 350, 400 pages long. <laughs> it doesn't look easy, but, uh, yeah, I, 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 uh, and thanks for, uh, for getting me excited about that. I, I, I really look forward to, uh, to learning how to fly i think it would be great as a lifestyle decision but i also think it would help my
0: business tremendously well that would be that'd be awesome if uh yeah if those accomplishments come to realization i'm sure they're going you know i can't thank you enough you're just so gen- generous in uh, uh your conversation and always being available and uh thank you appreciate it so much uh thank you yeah so likewise
1: and thanks for having me and uh If I can be of any other help or service, you know how to find me.
0: I look forward to things getting back to normal and uh, where people can socialize and uh, enjoy themselves again. Thanks again.
1: Yes, thank you. Take care.